Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. As you would have heard in my preview last night, it was the end of the Formula One season dominated by Red Bull and Max Verstappen. And joining us on the show tonight, our Formula One correspondent, Henrik Verwitz. Henrik, welcome. Thank you for your time, as always. Hey, Louis. Great to talk to you again. Max Verstappen, what more can we say? What a year. <laughs> what a driver. What a team. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, we don't have to go through all the records that he set, but uh, and his team set. But uh, you know, suffice to say, nineteen victories out of twenty-two for Verstappen himself. Um, twenty-one out of twenty-two for the team for Red Bull. You know, Max not only won nineteen races; he set the most fastest laps of the season. He set the most pole positions of the season. Um, and remarkably, his teammate uh, Sergio Perez struggled in the same car this season. Um, I think what what one has to say, and I've I've come across so many people who who say it was a, a boring season and so predictable and whatever. I think I just need to make the point again that you know we saw uh, an absolute genius in action this year. Um, you know, uh, you, you talk about other sports and you say when a sports person or another team dominates, people look forward to the next event to see if they can continue with that. You know, if you think back to uh, Tiger Woods when he came on the scene and he kept on winning, people said it was fantastic. And every time that he went out um, to play another uh, tournament, the number of spectators would increase because they wanted to see him in action. They wanted to see a master in action. I fail to understand why people don't get as excited about an absolute master in action such as uh, Max Verstappen this season, you know. Um, yes, it might be predictable who's going to win, but the fact of the matter is that he's making it look easy and he's making his, his competitors look like clowns in many cases. And that's the mark of an absolute, absolute world-class champion. And also, you know, if we look back and we, we go back in our lifetime, if you like, and we go back to Senna and Prost, then Schumacher, then Hamilton, and now Verstappen. It's not uncommon for a particular driver to be, you know, one second a lap on a 68 lapper is nearly a minute and a half faster than everybody else. So a second a lap doesn't sound like much, but he has been so dominant in a car, as you say, that he's, I know we've spoken about it before, it has to be almost the same, yet his performances were way in above everybody else's. Where do you rate him in, in the, all of those names I've mentioned? Oh, he's got to be amongst them, uh, Louis. There's no question about that. Um, there's absolutely no question about it because what they all have in common, and you should put in uh, Sebastian Vettel there as well, they were able to take specific design concept and take and make absolutely the most out of it where their teammates would not be able to do that and the same concept. And that's the only way that you can really measure in motorsport, uh, in fact, how you can measure a driver's ability is to compare that to his teammate in exactly the same machinery. Uh, yes, there may be little differences in their preferences, how to set up the car and how they want the car to behave in terms of, of handling and that sort of thing. But essentially, they've got exactly the same machinery at their disposal. And the one is able to to take it far more uh to the limit and over the limit and still be in control than their teammate. And that's the mark of, of greatness in, in motorsport and Formula One particularly. So, yes, absolutely. A part of that of that very uh, select club of multiple champions, um, you know, Max is, is only <laughs> he's still he's still very, very early in his career. Who knows how far he can take it? I know you, you mentioned those names, as I have. I think the mark again of those, especially in the modern era of Formula One, 
is their ability to drive the car, come back and tell the engineers what they need to do, which does separate the likes of Verstappen and Schumacher, Vettel and the others ahead of not only their teammates, but the other drivers on the grid. Yeah, you know, one always has to put in, you know, the caveat that all machinery are not exactly the same and not equal. So, again, the point is the only way to compare a driver is to compare him uh, against his teammate who has exactly the same. Um, It's still early, one should also not forget, it's still early in the new technical dispensation, Louis. This was only the second season after the ground effect era began, well, previous season. Um, and so performance-wise, they are still converging. And I suspect, uh, we'll probably talk about next season a little bit later, but I suspect you know, the convergence in performance between the drivers and between the teams is going to get better you know, for the next couple of years before the next big change in 2026. Um, so, uh, yeah, still the point is that the dominant driver is able to do more with the machinery than his teammate can and his competitors can. The one thing about the season is, let's just take Max out of the way, um, for the rest of the field, the competitive was fantastic. I mean, the cars were really close. You were not always sure who would come second. And there is a lot to talk about outside of Max as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, what was interesting in, in many teams, including uh, Red Bull, was the difference in performance on the day between teammates. Um, take Mercedes, for instance. You would often see during the season that, that Hamilton would, would be much more competitive on the given weekend than uh, George Russell and the other way around. And we saw the same at Ferrari. You know, sometimes it would be signs that would be completely dominant over Leclerc and the other times it would be the other way around. Um, take a team like McLaren, the same thing. Taking into account, of course, that Oscar Piastri was a rookie this year against um, Lando Norris. Uh, but he was able to be competitive. Uh, he, in fact, even won a race, although it wasn't a Grand Prix. It was a sprint race, Piastri. Uh, but again, you know, you have the contrast between the drivers um, going up and down as the season progressed. Um, maybe not at Aston Martin. I think at Aston Martin, you have Fernando Alonso completely dominating Lance Stroll. And so you can go on. Um, and I think the one factor that influenced that, or one of the reasons why that happened this year, was that some drivers were able to, in some conditions, get more out of their tyres. I think the tyres played, the Pirelli tyres played a huge role in performance this year, right throughout the field. It really depended on whether a particular driver on a particular day could get the best, could get the, 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 the performance window, or to hit this, the, what they call the sweet spot in the performance window of the tyres. <laughs> that sounds incredible. If they could yeah. hit the sweet spot on that day, they would be competitive. And their teammate who made you know, have similar setup, could not quite work their tires the way they should be worked, was um, way off the pace. The point that you made about the competitiveness behind Verstappen is well made. Last weekend in, in Abu Dhabi at, at one point, I think it was in, in one of the qualifying sessions, only one second separated all 20 drivers. One second. I mean, there were times in years gone past when it was one second between first and second in qualifying. Now you've got one second between 20 drivers um, and still at the beginning of a new era that will still be more competitive as the years go on for the foreseeable future. Um, I think it's it's fantastic, you know, the competitiveness in the field behind. And cleverly, I think the television producers knew this instinctively this year and emphasized that. We often saw races where we saw very little of the race leader 
and and uh, a lot of um, passing and repassing and battles being fought throughout this uh, the field, and and that was fantastic, I think, for the sport. Yeah, you talk about the battles. The one that stands out for me was the science Lando Norris ex-teammates joining together, keeping Lando in the slipstream. I mean, that was just remarkable. That was a race for me, one of them that's really stood out. Yes, yes. Carlos Sainz being clever enough to be able to, to see that if he could keep his one competitor close enough so that he has the DRS, that's Lando Norris, it would mean that, that Norris would be far enough ahead of, was it George Russell? Yeah. Uh, in the Mercedes, far enough ahead of them so that Russell could not challenge Lando so that Russell could not challenge Carlos uh, later on. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's tactical news that is brilliant to see. We saw some of that in the last race also, uh, Louis, in, in, in uh, Abu Dhabi, when uh, Charles Leclerc um, wanted to let Perez um, past him in order to stop George Russell from scoring the necessary points for Mercedes to end up uh, second in the championship. Uh, for him, it didn't work. But the point is that he was he had the, uh, the presence of mind and the awareness of the tactical situation and the strategic situation so that he could make that decision and actually be willing to give up a, uh, a position um, you know, in the race uh, in order for his team to score the necessary points. So it didn't quite work out that way, but it's it's fantastic to see that sort of presence. Um, and I'm sure if if Verstappen gets challenged more often, which I'm sure will be in the next year or two, uh, we are likely to see that sort of situations. We often saw that with Michael Schumacher, that he would yeah. know exactly what was going on. And what they do is they actually check <laughs> what's going on on the big screens around the track, and they see overtaking maneuvers and see, they see positional changes, and then they they sort of calculate what what that does for for the championship or their position or their team's position, and and that's the mark of greatness that they have that ability, that extra ability in their brains to work out that situation while you're still busy driving at 300 k's an hour and uh, experiencing five and six g's. Uh, through the corners and under braking and acceleration and being, you know, defensive or attacking, uh, depending on your situation in the race. So you've got to have that additional mental capacity to do that if you're one of the greats. So one of the things that struck me this season was Formula One have changed racetracks, um, yet the track limits that have continually plagued drivers, and I understand stay within the white lines, but the way they've designed these new Formula One racetracks, um, it allows the drivers instinctively to be able to go slightly wider than they would if there was a barrier, a wall and or a gravel trap. And I think through the season, we saw more and more these stewards getting involved, let alone the odd bump and a bash around a corner and whose nose was in the corner first, et cetera, et cetera. But this track limit issue, how do they resolve it? They didn't quite resolve it, and, and it's still going to be an issue. I yeah. see that the FIA is now going to employ um, artificial intelligence, AI, to try and solve it. The problem is, uh, Louis, that the circuit is not just for the use of Formula One. If it was, then they can take measures to ensure that drivers stay. And a driver will always take a chance. If he can go faster around a corner by going outside the track limits, he will do that. There's no question about it. That, that's what a racing driver does. He finds the quickest way around a corner. Um, but the problem is that that circuit also needs to be used by many, many other, um, not only racing formulas, for it to be a, a an ongoing business, the circuit, uh, you know, motorbikes and other forms of car racing, and also the public. Um, they have public race days, or not race days, track days, 
where people can bring their, their road cars, their own cars, or hire a car, and, and, and members of the public are not racing drivers. So you cannot have a situation where those people would then damage the car that they drive beyond repair by going into a wall if they just go over the track limit. Um, so that is the, the dilemma that motorsport finds itself in, um, and particularly Formula One. You have to accept the principle that the track limit is the confines of uh, activity, your, your sporting activity, just like the lines on a tennis court or the lines down at uh, an athletic track. You cannot step outside of those lines and you, then you, uh, you know, you're outside your, your playing area. The same principle has to be obeyed in motorsport and particularly in Formula One. How they police that, that is the difficulty. And, and they don't have a solution at this point. It's, it's got to be um, electronic in some way. And I see that they're going to use, as I said, AI uh, and use GPS positioning of the cars. And, and, and the more refined you can make the GPS positioning, the better if you can make it down to a centimeter um, that will probably be the, the, the solution. I don't, I'm not sure that they can do it. That is a dilemma, and it's going to a dilemma until they find a way of effectively policing it. Right, let's talk about some of the drivers, and let's go to the back of the grid, if we can. Um, disappointment, I don't think we can say we expected much more from a guy like <clears throat> Logan Sargent. The petulance, I feel, of Lance Stroll this season came to the fore, the frustration that he showed uh, when he didn't get his own way like a little naughty boy whose father owns the team, which <laughs> obviously is the truth. Um, disappointments as far as those two are concerned, or I didn't expect Stroll to be uh, as petulant as he was, but I didn't think, as time has shown us, the Americans just can't really get it right in a Formula One car, even though we're talking about Andretti racing coming in in the near future. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. You know, Logan has shown ability. I think he, he has a place in Formula One. He's, he's never going to be a champion. He might be, a, you know, a podium finisher in at some point. Um, I don't expect Williams to make any changes there, um, although he's the only driver that's yet to be confirmed for next season. The expectation is that he will remain. He was unlucky on a number of occasions where things didn't quite work out his way, but he was lucky uh, in the sense that he scored his one and only point um, in in America when two of the drivers ahead of him were disqualified. Um, look, I mean, it's good to have an American in Formula One. I don't think Sargent is the best possible American driver. I think when, and I'm not if, when Andretti joins Formula One, we will see better for uh, American drivers in the Pato Award is, is one. Um, but uh, no, I think I think Williams will take him because he, he can score points. Although, <laughs> having said that, he's the only driver that was out-qualified by his teammates right throughout the season. Okay, so yeah, I'll, I'll say disappointing because Alex Albon was was able to t- to take uh, that Williams much further and get much more out of it than it should actually be. Um, Lance Stroll to me is is an enigma. Uh, he can be fast, and I think he's the one driver on the grid that is able to make up the most positions right after the start. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he made up ten positions at the start in Abu Dhabi last weekend, and that's not the first time. He would not qualify well, but then he would start well, and then he would run quite competitively, and then something would go wrong. Or he would have a bad weekend, and and things won't go his way, um, and uh, he would not be competitive at all. Yes, he is daddy's boy uh, in the team, and yes, he's got that seat, however long Lawrence is the owner of the team. Um, 
he is quick on occasion. And and on occasion, if again, I don't have the figures in front of me, but I think he outqualified uh, Fernando three times this season. Um, so he can be quick, but he's inconsistent. And, and that's not what you want in a, in a driver. Um, but that's also often what you see in the lower base teams, that the, the drivers are not consistent. Maybe it's because they cannot get the most out of the machinery and that they would probably do much better if they were in a quicker and a better team. Um, but yeah, uh, those two are teammates that were completely overshadowed by their teammates. You talk about, and you mentioned him, I love a racer, Fernando. Good old Fernando. He <laughs> oh, brought absolutely. absolute brilliance to the season. I mean, he just commented over the weekend it was the best season he's ever had. And remember, he's been a world champion. What a performance. I know it dipped a little bit in the middle of the season, but he came out flying and he really has driven brilliantly. I used all his experience and I guess like I do, people just love watching a racer. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. At what is it now? 43? Something yeah. Like that. And he's still going strong. I mean, you know, he's an exception, obviously, to the rule. Uh, you don't expect somebody in their 40s to be that competitive. Um and uh, the Aston Martin story, uh, also intriguing this, this season. They started very, very strongly. And let's not forget that uh, was the first four or five races that Alonso finished third on the podium. Um, and they had a very strong opening half of the season, around about half. And then they just ev- somehow lost the plot and dropped away, completely dropped away in the second half of the season before they started picking it up again towards the end of the season. It's got to do with the upgrades that they brought to the car that didn't quite work. They were forced to kind of experiment over race weekends with upgrades, and some of them didn't work, and some did work. And eventually, it seems the last few races, Aston Martin did find a direction and that they were back to competitiveness. Exactly the opposite to a team like uh, McLaren, for instance, who started very badly in this season. They actually started the season saying that they know that they're not going to be competitive for quite a while, and they weren't. Um, and then uh, in the second half, when they brought a, um, a very good and competitive upgrade, I think it was from the Austrian Grand Prix onwards, they were completely a different team and eventually finished fourth. Uh, so Alonso, um, very happy. There were some stories through the season that, that he was not happy that he was going to leave. But the fact is that Alonso says it how it is. Um, and if he's not happy with the car and the performance, he says so. That doesn't mean that he wants to leave the team. Um, and overall, as he said um, at the end of the season, yes, he was very happy with the way the season went because they didn't quite expect to be this competitive and it's looking good for the future. So he's certainly looking forward to uh, at least one more season with the team, probably more. Two Australians, uh, one at the beginning of the season or just before the season had contractual issues and went to court and and then ended up in a car. And the other one, who we didn't think was going to be anywhere near a race car on a racetrack, came back in Oscar. And then, of course, Daniel Rick. Where did he come from? Look at his life change. It's always great to have Aussies in Formula 1. I, I, I generally don't like Australia as a sporting competitor That's, to South Africa. But uh, I love the Aussies in Formula 1. They, they are just, look, uh, Mark Webber, Daniel Ricciardo, now Oscar Piastri. Um, Piastri, no doubt, a potential champion for, of the future, depending on in which team he lands up in. A great rookie season for him. As you said, he had contractual problems towards the end of last year, uh, having having left Alpine and taken the seat at McLaren, of Daniel Ricciardo, that is. And Ricciardo being signed as a third driver for uh, 
AlphaTauri this season, um, expected to sit out uh, and basically just come in in case of an emergency. And then um, Nick de Vries didn't quite work out for AlphaTauri and uh, Daniel Ricciardo coming in and then he, he injured his hand in the Dutch Grand Prix and he sat out a number of races and came back towards the end of the season and he's now signed for them for next year. So it's great that he will be there in full-time um, racing. So uh, Danny Ricardo is always good, good for Formula One, and I think Oscar Piastri is going to be one of the major stars of the future. Results aside, um, the Ferrari of Charles Leclerc, brilliant, but just couldn't finish. Well, another enigma again, Ferrari this year. Um, competitive over one lap, mostly. Um, Leclerc scoring a lot of pole positions. I don't have these um, statistics in my mind, but uh, he scored a lot of pole positions but couldn't quite convert them. Um, the only team to win a race apart from Red Bull this year was Ferrari with uh, Carlos Sainz in Singapore on a strange weekend when Red Bull quite yeah. made, made quite a few mistakes in the setup of their car, couldn't quite get it right, and Ferrari did get it right. And towards the end of the season, Ferrari being very, very competitive uh, on race pace as well. Uh, let's not forget this was the first season for, for Fred Vasseur to be in charge as team principal. So he's still, I think, taking uh, taking the time to, to get everything in place. Um, I'm optimistic for the future of, of, of Ferrari for next year. I think they're going to be much more consistently competitive. Um, but this year they didn't quite make it, almost finished second in the championship, but was put by Mercedes just right at the end by uh, three points. So, um, yeah, Ferrari, again, uh, not a satisfactory season, um, but they had to almost start from scratch with a new team principal. And let's not forget that, you know, you take a team principal out of the team, his people around the previous guy all leave. He's got to get new people in that, that he can work with, that they, that were, they have all become used to the new culture in the team, the working culture uh, and that sort of thing. So it, it does take a while. And I think one should be patient with a team that has a new team principal, especially for Ferrari. New team principal takes time. And I think next year is going to be much stronger. Before we look ahead to next year, it would be remiss of me to not mention Sir Lewis Hamilton. Your thoughts on his season along with George Russell? Interestingly, I mean, he finished third and Russell finished eighth. And I think that shows also one of the points that I made earlier in the season, you know, inconsistency uh, in performance on any given race weekend. But Hamilton, apart from Verstappen, is the only driver who scored points on every race weekend. Yes, he was disqualified in the USA, but he scored a second place in that weekend's uh, sprint race. And the sprint race is another, you know, the talking point for the season. Um, that will continue for next year. But Hamilton, again, very, very consistent, um, but very unhappy with the car. The car is not the way that he wants it. Uh, Mercedes started off the season with the same concept as the end of last year with the W13 uh, last year, so-called zero-pod design. Halfway through the season, they, they abandoned that and they came up with much more Red Bull-like side-pod concept, and they are going to completely start with a new uh, concept for next season because they cannot develop this car any further and make it more competitive. I'm not sure that they're going to be competitive right from the start next year. But uh, Lewis Hamilton, again, a winless season, the second winless season in a row. Um, is he getting a little bit fed up? Many people are saying that uh, there were stories um, over the last few days, last few weeks, that he was looking at maybe going to Red Bull. That will never, ever happen, I can tell you. No. But is he getting un unhappy? I don't think so. I think he, he sees himself so much as a part of the Mercedes family that he would like to lead them uh, back competitiveness. And that eighth world championship, he's still targeting that. 
Um, so um, I think he's going to be there and he's going to be competitive for the foreseeable future. So 24 uh, races in 2024. The 6th of December, that weekend, is the last race at Yas Marina. And they get underway with testing at the end of February, a leap year next year. So 29th of February, they're on the track in Bahrain. And then starting off in Saudi Arabia and off to Australia. Uh, what, if anything different, can we expect? Or are Red Bull going to be team to beat again? Yeah, I think they're going to be the team to beat again. I think the competition is going to be much closer this year. Uh, this year showed that the uh, the other teams are on the up. And Red Bull is going to be not that far far down the road. Uh, the interesting thing about next year, is that at least the first two races in Bahrain and then the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix at Jeddah, is they're going to be on a Saturday, Louis. Uh, we yeah. haven't seen a Saturday race in South Africa um, since 1985, when our very own Grand Prix took place on a Saturday. Um, although the Las Vegas Grand Prix was on a Saturday in Las Vegas time, it was Sunday South African time. But uh, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia are much closer to South Africa time-wise in the time zone. So, I, uh, you know, the 2nd of March is the Bahrain Grand Prix. Or the 9th of March is the uh, Saudi, uh, Saudi Grand Prix. And I suspect I don't have the, ex- the actual times with me, but I, I suspect there's going to be a Saturday evening on both occasions for South Africa. 24 races for the first time ever next year. It's going to be very, very tough. China is back. And, of course, we didn't have the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix at Imola this year because of flooding. Uh, that that race should be back. I think they would have uh, sorted out all those problems if it doesn't rain again. So 24 races next year, starting, as you said, on um, on the 2nd of March. The, the Friday, in fact, is the 29th of February, as you mentioned. Yeah. And then the final race is on the weekend of the 6th to the 8th of December, a long season ahead. And that's apart from the preseason testing that's going to be at, in Bahrain the week before the first race. And, of course, we are currently testing at the moment. There's a, a test session at the moment going on at uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, tire testing, basically. So the teams are still busy, and they're going to be busy right throughout the winter period. As always, Henry Kovut, thank you so much for chatting to us. We will catch up with you before the start of the new season. I'm sure lots will happen besides the drivers going off to the Caribbean and onto some fancy yachts. Thank you so much for your time. Great pleasure, Louis. Always great to talk to you guys. Cheers. That is tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room 2023 Formula One season done and dusted. Until next time, be nice to each other. Bye for now.